Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Dear friends in Christ Jesus, I hope that you are glad to be in church here tonight. I suppose all of us have had busy days. We are all tired. It would have been very easy, as I have usually said, to stay home. Yet uh, there is something, isn't there, about the call of our soul that when we know the church bell is going to ring, we feel that God is calling us to worship. And this is the holy season of the year. This is that Lenten season of 40 days before Easter, the time that the church has set apart in the ages past to consider the sufferings and death of Christ. And it is well that as we prepare ourselves for Easter, we take a little extra time, that we come to God's house, that we look at our Christ, and that we be drawn just a bit closer to him and more sure of him. And what we are doing in this Lenten season, as you know, we are looking at some of the questions that were asked in the story of Christ's sufferings and death. The questions that have a way of disturbing you and me, they upset us, they bother us. And I'm sure that if you have been present each Wednesday night, the questions we've talked about have done just that. There was that first one when Jesus in the upper room said to the disciples, one of you will betray me. And then each one turned to him and said, Lord, is it I? And that gave you and me sort of a guilty feeling, didn't it, when we looked at that question. And then we followed Jesus to the Garden of Gethsemane. And when he prayed so fervently, went back to Peter, James, and John three times and found them asleep each time when he said, Oh, again in sorrow, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? And that question bothered us, didn't it? And then again when Judas came with the soldiers and uh, they were ready to bound Jesus and Peter took his sword and cut off the servant's ear. And when Jesus told him to put the sword back into the scabbard and then said, How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be if you're going to do it that way, Peter? And that question bothered us. And then last Wednesday night when Jesus was led away to Caiaphas the high priest and the church in the person of the high priest, the head of the church, asked him the question, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And when we asked ourselves that question last Wednesday night, that disturbed and bothered us too, didn't it? And tonight it's a most disturbing question that we're going to consider. After Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, that's the church, that's the high tribunal of the Jews, after it had given its verdict that Jesus was worthy of death, they waited for mourning because they realized that to give a death sentence, even to convene during the night, was illegal according to their own law. So as, again, the dawn began to break, they reassembled this tribunal, again with Caiaphas at the head, and they had another short trial, re-again condemning Jesus to death because he had spoken blasphemy, he had claimed to be God, and then they led him away to Pontius Pilate, who was not a Jew, he was a governor of, again, Palestine, and he was a Roman, he was a Gentile. The reason why they went to him was because of the fact that Caesar, under whom Palestine was as a slave, had given them many rights and authorities, and they exercised it, they had their own courts, they could do anything in trying a person except sentence him to death. 
And so they went to Pontius Pilate because the Sanhedrin had decided that Jesus was going to have to die. And so when they, early in the morning, went to the praetorium, to the governor's palace, we are told that they didn't go into the building because they as a Jew would have rendered themselves ceremonially unclean and they couldn't have eaten the Passover. It was good to put a man to death. They could have hatred, but they couldn't make themselves ceremonially unclean. So Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, he normally lived over in Caesarea on the Mediterranean Sea because that was the Roman capital of Palestine, but for the season of the Passover, he always came to Jerusalem expecting trouble. And so it was that he went out to them, and here were the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders of the Sanhedrin, and naturally Pontius Pilate said, oh, What's the accusation? Why do you bring this man to me? And the cry came back from the crowd early that morning, If he were not an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him to you. And then Pilate said, well, then you take him and try him according to your law. You have some authority. And they said, it isn't lawful for us to put a man to death. It was then that Pilate realized that they were out for blood. They were out to put him again to death. They wanted him crucified. So Pilate went back into the praetorium and he looked at Jesus. And again, he wondered just exactly what was wrong. Well, the mob had said that these were the things that were wrong with him, that he was an insurrectionist. He was a man who wasn't for law and order. He was for, again, revolutionizing the government, tearing up things as they were. He had told them not to pay any tribute or any taxes to the government, and he had claimed to be a king. So when Pilate looked at Jesus, the last one seemed to be the most serious one. He looked at Jesus and he said, Are, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus asked him a very simple question and yet a very important one. He said, are you asking this of yourself or are you asking this from the point of view of others? In other words, are you asking me this as a Jew or are you asking me this as a Gentile? If he were asking as a Gentile, Jesus would readily assure him that again he was not an earthly king. And when Pilate snapped back, he said, am I a Jew? Don't you dare call me a Jew, he said. And then it was that Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. Mine is not the kind of a kingdom you may think. If I was going to establish a kingdom of this earth, he said, I would have servants and they would fight. And they, again, would release me from anything. My kingdom is not of this world. To satisfy Pilate that he was not one guilty of treason, he was not going to overthrow the Roman government. Well, when he had said that, then Pilate looked at him again. He said, but you are a king, are you? You still claim to be a king? And Jesus said, I am, just as you say that I am. And he said, for this cause I came into the world. Christ trying to tell him the kind of a king he had. For this cause I came into the world. And he said, this is the reason for my coming. This is the end of my coming into the world, that I should be a king. And he says, everyone that is of the truth, he says, heareth my voice. And then it was that Pilate looked at him and when Jesus said, every man that is of the truth heareth my voice, Pilate snapped at him in a rather cynical, sarcastic tone. <laughs> what is truth? You know, for 2,000 years since Pilate asked that question, that question is being asked in the church and it's being asked out of the church. It's a disturbing question. Did you ever ask it yourself? Did you ever say, well, what is truth? Jesus says, everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. What is truth? Is it a rather cynical, sarcastic, blasphemous question? Rather upsets, doesn't it? And tonight we're going to ask this question that Pilate asked Jesus. 
thinking in spiritual things. Father, what is truth? In other words, she was saying, is there such a thing as truth? What is this thing of truth or fact that you're talking about a kingdom that is not of this world? It causes you and me to stop for a moment tonight and to ask this perplexing and disturbing question when we think about what is truth. Is there such a thing as truth, as fact, as verity in what is supposed to be a spiritual realm? We talk about the atheist, don't we? Let's get our terms straight. Uh, the, the word atheist comes from two Greek words, the a before the word. Uh, that is a negation or it's the reality of no. The theist, that comes from the Greek word theos, which means God. So atheos, atheist, means one who says no God. One who says there is no God. The atheist then is a person that says there isn't such a thing as truth. There isn't such a thing as reality. There isn't such a thing as fact as regards what you talk about in the spiritual realm. The atheist says there isn't any God. There isn't any life beyond the grave. Man doesn't have a soul. There is no future life for man. The atheist is the man that negates God. When Madeline O'Hare was down at Cap University and she did speak to the student body down there, she told them what an atheist she was. But she had finally come to the conclusion that there is no God. And then she told the student body how free she felt, that she had no hang-ups anymore at all, that therefore she threw away all moral scruples, and she cursed and she used the usual four-letter words and thought it was rather smart and was rather cynical. She said, you see, when you deny the existence of God or life beyond the grave, then you're really free, she told them. And you can do as you please. And you don't have to worry about what's moral or what's immoral. She said, I have no moral scruples. I do as I please. And she says, this is freedom. You remember we read the 14th Psalm, and there God says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. God calls an atheist a fool, and no greater truth has ever been spoken. That would be just like you and me tonight, we're in this church. The atheist in this realm would have to say, here is a building, but there was no builder. Just as he said, here is the universe, and there is no creator. There is no architect. God says, you're a fool. And there is no greater fool in all the world than an atheist. Because you negate everything that is obvious in the physical realm. Can you imagine a church without a builder? Can you imagine the pew that you're sitting on without somebody having built it? Therefore, God says, when anybody looks out and sees the reality of a universe and says, there is no God, that man's a fool, and he is. That's what he is. My experience with atheists has been this. 
atheists are not born. The heathen, wherever you find him in the darkest hinterlands in the world, he believes in a supreme deity. Oh, he doesn't know the true God. But man by nature is hopelessly religious because he may worship the sun, he may worship the moon, he may worship the stars, but there's something within him that cries out that there is something bigger or someone greater. And it's rather disturbing when we say, what is truth? Well, then we ask ourselves, is there such a thing as truth or reality or verity? When you talk about spiritual things, of course, Madeline O'Hare, she in cynical language would say, I've never seen God, therefore there isn't any. Therefore, again, there is no life beyond the grave. And as she is being quoted, she said, when you die, you rot. Well, that's all that's left. And that bothers you and me, doesn't it? And we say to ourselves, what is truth? Is there truth and verity in the spiritual field? Well, if God labels a man a fool, Let's realize this. And again, in my experience, I have never met an atheist, but when I talk to him, I find out he's bitter about something. Atheists are not born, they're made. I have found men who have said to me, there isn't any God, there's no life beyond the grave, this is the end. And as I begin to speak and to pry into their lives, I find extreme hatred against someone. Somebody did something, and I am sure that even in Madeline O'Hare's life, that if she were honest, and you could spend a half an hour with her alone and talk to her, and if she, again, would be truthful, that you would come along something in her life that has bred this hatred against man and against God. Atheists are not born. They're made by determination. We said to ourselves tonight, as Pilate said to Jesus there in the Praetorium, <laughs> what is true? That, that bothers, doesn't it? We say, well, the atheist is a fool, and he is. Just as foolish as you and I to say, we're in a church, but there was no builders, just been here, came from nothing. You and I have got better sense than that. As we look at the universe, we've got to have better sense than to imagine the universe that ever came into existence from nothing, without a God, without a creator, without a designer, an architect. And it gives rise to another question. We may say, well, is it possible to know with any degree of certainty any truth about God and life beyond the grave? Can anybody be sure? Now, this brings up another class of individuals they call themselves agnostics and we ought to get that term and you say what is that and that comes from two Greek words too the a which actually means no a negation and the gnostic comes from the Greek word gignosko which means to know so the a the a gignosko or agnostic is the person that says I don't know and no one else knows I once had a college professor who again was an avowed agnostic. This was his answer to God and to life beyond the grave and to heaven and to hell. 
and to the reality of spiritual things, he would say, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just don't know. And then he would say, no one else knows. It's impossible to know for sure. And he says, if there is a God, he used to say to me, uh, then he's big enough to understand my problem, uh, that I don't know. But you see, the agnostic, he's the one that says, I don't know, and he's so sure that no one else can know. And therefore, again, he, he just hopes. But can you imagine a more miserable feeling in your life and mine uh, than to be an agnostic, to, to face death and to know that death is coming and then just to have to say oh I don't know is there God I don't know is there life I don't know is there a heaven I don't know is there hell I don't know I can't imagine anybody more miserable I have dealt with agnostics on their deathbed and it's miserable and as far as I'm concerned, God spare me from that kind of a death to go into eternity and just simply to shiver and to be afraid and say, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm going to rot, whether this is the end of life, or whether there's going to be something I don't know. And I come back to this in my own life. The very fact that when I look out on this universe and my common horse sense tells me that a universe demands a builder, a creator, there must have been an architect. It couldn't have come from nothing. Then I say to myself, a God this big who could design a universe like the one in which you and I live, again, that has such laws that by following them and discovering them we could actually put a man on the moon. Surely a God that big is big enough to let me in on certainty with regard to truth in spiritual things. And I ask myself then when I say again, what is truth? Oh, it was easy for a pilot to be cynical and to be sarcastic uh, that early morning to Jesus. <laughs> what is truth? Who knows? Nobody knows. There isn't such a thing as truth. But I come back to this question and it bothers me. If God is big enough to fashion the universe like he has, and there had to be a builder. Isn't he big enough to tell me truths if there is, again, a spiritual realm, if I have a soul, if there is a life beyond the grave? And I come back to this very simply, and I say, surely he must be. I can't conceive of God being big enough to fashion the universe and then not being big enough to tell me about himself but I may have some certainty about truth in a realm where even though I can't see him, even though I can't taste him or touch him or smell him like I can with material things, that I may have certainty as regards the reality of God. I don't find it hard then to feel that God must be big enough. And I thank him because when I turn to the scriptures, this is what I find the Bible tells me, that here the God who created the universe talks to me. And here he tells me about himself. Here he gives me truth and verity that he wants me to know. And I've 
spent many a year in the study of this book. And I, I want to say this, that the more I study it and the more the hours that are put in in perusing its pages, the more there grows this conviction that our great God really makes known truth here. We may say to ourselves, look at the popularity of the Bible today and it claims just this thing, that here is truth. Here God speaks. Here God tells us about himself. I have never seen an age, even again years in my brief life, when the Bible has been as popular as it is today. You ought to go to a newsstand or a bookstand in any of the stores and see the translations of the Bible. This happens to be the King James Version. You and I grew up on it and we love it and when you don't hear it we wonder. I use the King James Version in the pulpit as you know. Then I use some of the other translations over at the lectern. And I know that some of you say, well, we'd like to hear the King James all the time, but I think a little of both is good. Uh, just like some of our Roman Catholic friends, now that the Mass is in English, it's different than the way they had it from childhood in the Latin. But again, that in the English language it might be understood a little more fully. But when you look at book stamps today and you see the translations that are coming out, especially of the New Testament, it's an amazing thing. And how they are selling by the millions of copies that no longer can anyone say that I, I can't read the New Testament, I don't understand it. It's written in your language and mine. And we can get the New Testament for 35 cents on up. And right now I am reading the New Jerusalem Bible and it's a tremendous undertaking and a task and that Old Testament translated by some of the greatest Jewish scholars in our day. And the New Testament by some of the greatest Protestant and Roman Catholic scholars who have said one thing, we shall not inject into the word of God what is not there, but let us try to translate it from the oldest manuscripts that we have, that we can say to the world, this is the word of God, and the New Jerusalem Bible does just that, accepted by the Jew who accepts the Old Testament, and by the Protestant world and the Roman Catholic Church as regards the New Testament, that this is the Word of God. When we look at that, we say to ourselves, well, if we have the Bible and here it claims, therefore, that it tells us about God and it tells us truth about Him, uh, can I be sure that in the spiritual realm there is truth, that there is a God? Can I be sure that even though I haven't seen Him, that I know that he lives. What does the word of God tell me about him that I would never dream possible? And it's an amazing thing, friends, when we turn to the scriptures and we say to God, God, tell me about yourself. Tell me what kind of a God you are. And if you are a kind of a God that I could never dream of and yet a God who doesn't insult my intelligence, well, then you and I can say for ourselves, is this the true and living God? And those of us who have looked at the scriptures, we have said this, what a unique revelation we find of God here. That God tells us that he's one God and yet at the same time he is a trinity, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
And you and I must realize this, that is one of the most unique things no man would have ever dreamed of that. And that God tells us that he, God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are from everlasting to everlasting. That God tells us that he's all-powerful. God says that I'm all-knowing, I'm all-wise, I'm everywhere present at the same time. I am holy. I am without sin. I am a fair God. And then a tremendous revelation that God has made of himself. As far as I'm concerned, this answers any doubt in my mind, but that I know this, the living God is speaking. In the scriptures, God makes known to you and me that he loves us. And try as I do, I can find the word love in no other religion on the face of the earth. And I can't answer how the word love ever got into the scriptures except in one way that the living true God must have made that fact known. May I issue a little challenge to any one of you tonight. You find me the word love in any other religion on the face of the earth. Zoroastrianism or Buddhism or Hinduism or Shintoism or Taoism and I'll eat it. It isn't there. And yet, 400 and more times in the scriptures, the word love occurs. That God loves you and me. I have no other answer in my own personal life as a Christian. And I say it with full conviction and unhesitatingly. The fact that in the scriptures, a living God tells me he loves me, something that I'd never dream of, that he doesn't need me, that he doesn't want to condemn me, he doesn't want to damn me, assures me that even though I've never seen him, it must be the living true God speaking because I can't explain the word love in any other way. I don't know where it ever came from if he didn't make it known. It is that unique, and I hope that everyone here tonight can have that same conviction. What is truth? Is there any truth with regard to God? Is there any truth with regard, again, to life beyond the grave? There's no question about it. A living God says, I am your God. He describes himself a perfect God. You and I couldn't improve on him. All the other gods of all religions have imperfections, not this one. And thank God when he tells me about himself, I've got to look up. Because there are things about him that I can't understand. In all other religions, you look down. Because the gods of all other religions, are the, again, they are the fashion, the imagination of man's mind, not this God. I hope that none of us as a Christian can ever say this when we say, what is truth? That we'll say it like Pontius Pilate, <laughs> in a cynical, sarcastic way, as much as to say, there isn't any reality. There's no verity in spiritual things. Oh, yes, there is. So much so that God himself could not have given us any greater proof of himself than he has given because, let's ask this question, what does the scripture say about Jesus Christ? That's what we're doing in the Lenten season, aren't we? What's so wonderful about him? The thing that I find tremendously wonderful about him 
is the fact that when I look at him, I find a perfect answer to the sin problem. When I look at myself, I don't. When I look at myself and I say, well, there is a life beyond the grave, and how can I attain unto it? And I try, and I try, and I pray, and I try to live a decent life, and I try to fulfill the law of God, and it always leaves something within me that's lacking, and I say, but it just isn't enough. I can't buy it. I can't earn it. But when I look to Jesus Christ, as he is revealed in the Scripture, I find something perfect. I find that Jesus who stood before Pontius Pilate that night, I find that he was no less than God as he swore and taken an oath before Caiaphas, as we heard last Wednesday. And I find that that's tremendous that he is deity because he is of more value than the human race. And I find that he was a true man without sin, born of the Virgin Mary. And I find, therefore, that when he went to Calvary's cross, he paid in full for the sins of the world. And the joy of this is that being God, he wasn't more bowing, he could. And I find this for my own personal conviction, that he met the justice of God absolutely and perfectly, that he did everything that was necessary to save your soul and mine from eternal death and everlasting damnation. Let me put it this way. I find all the verity I need as regards Jesus Christ because it is a perfect way to heaven. It answers every need. That I can say it matters not who I am or what I am or what my sins are, how great they are, how long I have persisted in sin. I can turn to Calvary and I can see the God-man who died and with that timeless sacrifice that he paid the price for me regardless of how damnable I am. Then any Christian tonight when he asks the question, what is truth? Let him say this. God has given you and me all the verity, all the truthfulness, all the facts that we can stand on it and we can be just as certain that the God of the Scriptures is the true God, that there is a life beyond the grave, that in Jesus Christ there is life and salvation, as you and I can be that we're right here in church tonight. What is truth? Oh, we can be cynical about it. The atheist can look in ridicule and say, there isn't any God, but he's a fool. The agnostic can say, I don't know, no one else knows. What a torturous death to go into something when you aren't sure. But thank God this is what it means to me. And you may say, well, is there such a thing as truth? What is truth? God is truth. Jesus Christ is truth. His word is truth. The scriptures are truth. When you bring it down into your life and mine, what do we find? I find this that it doesn't insult my intelligence, that the fact that I haven't seen God with my naked eye doesn't bother me in the least. I thank God that he took even a better way to let me know that he is the living God. He told me about himself. 
And that the way again is the way of faith. It is not the way of sight. Someday I'll see. But the way of faith is just as certain. It is just as positive. And when you and I are honest with him, this is the experience of every individual. When the time comes in your life and mine that we go up to Jesus Christ and his cross and we're honest and we lay our sins at the foot of the cross and we're really honest with him that we really mean it and we put down at the foot of the cross every deliberate sin. I mean this. I mean if there's anybody here tonight who has hatred in his heart against his neighbor and you say to me, I've never experienced we ask him to forgive us and to give us strength, and we say, never again! Well, I deliberately hate the person I've been hating. If in your Christian experience and mine there has been no inner peace, and then let's ask ourselves tonight, why? And there's a reason. We haven't been honest. We haven't laid at the foot of Calvary. We haven't put there the secret deliberate sins that we like to do. You'll never find peace and nor will I until we have laid at the cross every deliberate, dirty, sinful thing in your life and mine that we think we can keep on doing. We haven't been honest. But may I assure you and myself of this, that if tonight we lay at the foot of the cross everything that we know is wrong and we say I'm guilty and I'm lost and I'm damned forgive me be my Lord and be my Savior there will come then a peace oh, that will bring joy and we won't be afraid to die because conscience will be at rest and we can go out of this church tonight and we can say for the first time in our lives we have found rest. You've got to be honest to God or there isn't any peace. And when we find that peace in Christ, there isn't a Madeline O'Hare, there is no agnostic, no atheist that'll ever be able to destroy your faith and mind because we will say, I have experienced what it means to have peace in Jesus Christ. We can go back every day, can't we? And we can sleep at night because he is so willing to forgive. And every day there comes that joy and that peace that at eventide all is well with the world. And we can keep on singing then from an inner experience. Back to the cross I go again as oft as I have sinned to sing again the glad refrain that Jesus is my friend. Hard by the cross where not a soul has ever been cast out, I prostrate fall confessing all and banish every doubt. I promise you, dear friend, when we confess all at the cross, every doubt is banished. What is truth? Jesus is true. He is verity. You can stake your life on him. Amen.
The peace of God, which passeth all human understanding, keep and unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Amen.